Well, it's a thrill to be back with the Society of Dermatology PAs and to present uh, topics related to oral dermatology. I came by my interest in oral dermatology pretty naturally as my father and his father were both dentists. And since I wasn't quite as good with my hands as they were, I ended up in another healthcare profession and became a dermatologist. And because of their interest and my interest in canker sores, gravitated toward mucous membrane uh, conditions, uh, oral in particular, but all kinds of mucous membrane conditions. And so I'm here to teach you a little bit about the mouth and some of the inflammatory and troublesome lesions in the mouth and encourage you to examine uh, the mouth whenever you get a chance so you are familiar with what looks to be normal and what uh, may be abnormal. First topic of the day is stomatitis, inflammation of the mouth like appendicitis is inflammation of the appendix. So that's a very broad base of inflammation and we'll drill down on that base. And we'll talk about drug reactions in the mouth first. So this is something that comes mostly internally. And then external causes of stomatitis, which would then be contact stomatitis. I have no um, affiliations with any pharmaceutical companies or any of industry, so I have no disclosures to make. We will talk a bit about off-label use of medications, and so I uh, will uh, want you to know that in advance. And the, all the photographs you're going to see are comes from Mayo Clinic patients who've uh, given us permission to use their images in educa for educational purposes. So the first then part of the talk is oral drug reactions or stomatitis medicamentosa. And this requires that you think about it. Most people don't stumble onto this until the light bulb goes off and you recognize that, oh, this could be driven by something systemic. Need a compatible clinical picture. We'll be looking at clinical pictures so that you will have a catalog of clinical pictures available to you. And then a timeline is critical. When did this process begin? Lay out all the drugs, move along the timeline, and see, because it's more likely to be a recently introduced drug than a drug that's been administered for a long period of time. A biopsy would be most helpful to exclude those other diseases which might be confusing. Diseases such as pemphigus or pemphigoid or oral lichen planus, and you'll be hearing a lecture later on on immunobullous diseases. Now, we use drugs that have sulfa in them in many, many uh, ways. And these drugs were called sulfonamides. And you've heard of the class of sulfur-containing drugs, sulfonamides. And when I ran across this chart, I was almost stunned to see how many drugs really were sulfonamides and then could be legitimately considered to be cousins. And if cousins, you react to one of them, all the cousins are suspicious. And so we have that whole family of diuretics. We have the entire family of anti-diabetics, sulfonylureas, a whole family of many non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents, Celebrex, and others. 
And then, of course, uh, how many men over the age of 70 aren't on Flomax for their prostate? An alpha blocker to help you urinate more easily. And then, of course, all the sulfa-based uh, antibiotics, Bactrim, Septra, and uh, that group of drugs. So think about the drug-drug uh, relationships and how many might possibly be included if you have a sulfa allergy in your patient. So what I'm going to present to you now are dramatic oral drug reactions, things once you see them, you're going to probably remember them. And the five most dramatic, some of which come from external and some which come from internal sorts of situations, but these are mostly external. Aspirin burns, cotton roll stomatitis, that's that little white roll the dentist puts in your mouth to absorb the saliva while they're working. Escherotic, and escherotic is a caustic. Silver nitrate is a caustic. Whiskey, you know what that is, whiskey burn, and pepperoni pizza palatal burn. So an aspirin burn. This patient had a sore molar, a toothache. New aspirin's good for pain, so he put one back there. Well, the acetylsalicylic acid caused an aspirin burn uh, in this area. Not recommended. Although you do get a high concentration of aspirin. This patient was sent to Mayo Clinic with a potential tongue cancer. And uh, I don't know why they ended up in dermatology, I guess because I was keenly interested in oral diseases. But uh, here was this tongue ulcer, probably the worst canker sore you ever saw in your life. And he said that he had a canker sore and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And of course, we were really concerned that he did have oral cancer, no, no lymph nodes in the neck any place. And it was very clean uh, looking ulcer. So he, uh, these were many years ago, so he was admitted to the hospital for evaluation. And so he's closer to the surgeons. The dermatology resident admitted him to our dermatology hospital service and uh, I had elicited the history and told him to stop using Aspergum. Aspergum is aspirin included in chewing gum, and you chew on it, then you get a high concentration of aspirin. So he would make a nice chaw of Aspergum, then stick it in his wound because it, it helped with the pain. And the wound kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and so we took his Aspergum away, but he got his wife to bring him some more. So, <laughs> We finally got it away. He had multiple scouting biopsies, all showed necrosis and inflammation. And this is an Aspergum oral ulcer. Cotton roll stomatitis, if the saliva doesn't pool enough, the cotton roll sticks to the mucosa and then it's peeled away. So you can see two gum line dental restorations with amalgam and then an erosion. This is secondary to the cotton roll. Escherotic trauma. We use these to treat canker sores and sometimes cold sores. You can purchase similar products but milder over the counter. And the strong ones are Negatan and, uh, and a number of others, which are very powerful sulfuric acid. And uh, this one uh, patient tried to use themselves. You can see a new crown on the tooth, little pain in the area. And uh, they, why they tried to use that was because they had used it for a canker sore in the past, and it caused this burn. And finally, uh, this patient had a new crown, 
and she remembered that her mother told her that if your baby is teething and their teeth hurt or their gums hurt, rub a little uh, whiskey on it. And the baby will be comforted. I guess if you get enough in there, the baby doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> so she just got some single malt scotch whiskey from her husband and held it up there next to that crown and got a whiskey burn. And then finally, the pepperoni pizza palatal burn. That's when the pepperoni still has bubbling hot oil in it and you slip the pizza into your mouth and it sticks to your palate. <laughs> pepperoni palate burn. I'm the pizza fairy. I'm here to replace the skin on the roof of your mouth. So those are dramatic stomatitis medicamentosa or oral drug reactions. But let's look at some others that might come from drugs administered systemically. And gingival hyperplasia is one of those. And that's seen with anti-epileptic uh, uh, drugs and cyclosporin, lichenplanus, a very common disease, very common skin disease, 2% of the population or so have lesions of lichenplanus. Very common oral disease, 2% of all patients have oral lichenplanus. And we'll go through some of these characteristic clinical oral drug reactions. So, gingival hyperplasia. How many of you have seen patients on anti-epileptic anti drugs who have gingival hyperplasia? A few hands go up. So it's an overgrowth of the gingivae, and it probably comes from stimulation of fibroblasts to produce a good deal of extra collagen and elastic tissue. And the enlargement, interestingly, is absent at sites where there are no teeth. And all of the drugs which cause drug-induced gingival hyperplasia are drugs which interfere with intercellular calcium metabolism, which is a, a whole family of almost all of the anti-epileptic drugs, and the neurologists will know which ones they can use when they encounter this. And these patients need to be seen regularly by their dentist and have good dental uh, care. And then cyclosporin, which is often used in transplantation medicine. So here is a patient with dental appliances, and you can see the piece of popcorn that she didn't get out of her dental appliances. Very hard to get in between the dental appliances and floss into these areas, and so growth, overgrowth of the gingivae, which can be really quite dramatic and needs to be sculpted by the periodontist to return the teeth uh, more toward normal. So dilantin and other gingival hyperplasia, quite, this is more inflammatory with a lot of periodontitis inflammation from uh, plaque and from microorganisms. And here are the drugs, and this will be listed in your thumb drive because my slides were in early and they should have been reproduced. <laughs> A star and very good for me. And some references, should you want to look these up. Lycanplanus. Many drugs can cause a common condition. A condition is common, lycanplanus. Many drugs are used commonly and some of them cause a lycanplanus-like condition. And so here we see the lichenoid, that means thick and heavy and like lichen on the, growing on the north side of trees. And here's a lichenoid plaque of the commissure extending onto the buccal mucosa. Here are lesions on the undersurface of the tongue, hyperkeratotic white papules, 
lichen planus, and the families of drugs which cause oral lichen planus, a drug-induced oral lichen planus, include, again, our friends, the anti-diabetic medications, which are sulfa-based, and then gold and D-penicillamine that a rheumatologist might use, alpha and beta blockers may be used for blood pressure uh, control, tetracycline, very commonly used antibiotic, and then unusual quinine and quinidine, but a lot of people get quinine for leg cramps. So if your patient is taking these medications and they have oral lichenoid lesions, they may have a drug-induced oral lichen planus, and it's not going to get better till you take away the medication. The black hairy tongue, you can see in the midline of the tongue, first the tongue is furred, but in the midline you have the black areas, and some of the papillae are long and filiform or finger-like, and so this is a black hairy tongue uh, secondary to a drug. Griseofulvin can do this that may change the oral microflora, the oral microflora that grow, elaborate porphyrins, porphyrin makes pigment, pigment is seen. And then thrush, a common side effect of systemic antibiotic therapy or systemic corticosteroid therapy, particularly those people using aerosolized corticosteroids for asthma. And so thrush, white curds, small white flecks of material in the oral cavity, extensive here in this patient, and the little white flex seen in the pharynx in the background of erythema, typical thrush secondary to a drug reaction. Oral ulcerations are a common presentation of an oral drug reaction. And so many different drugs, you've seen it caused directly by aspirin, and the most common cause of oral ulcerations from drugs are the antimetabolites and the anti-cancer treatment drugs. So we'll go through this list together. This patient was treated with an anti-metabolite causing an extensive stomatitis. Now you remember when you were taught to read x-rays, you were said, do not look at the heart and the, the center of the x-ray, but always look on the edges first and then move your eyes inside so you don't miss the broken rib that's available to see. So what do you see as you look on the rim of this photograph? We just had a lecture on them. Show some subungual hyperkeratosis, maybe some oil drops. The patient has psoriasis, a very early patient with psoriasis in the days before methotrexate when aminoctrin was used. And it was very effective at treating psoriasis, but it gave this patient a stomatitis meticomatosa. Enamel staining. This is uh, very disturbing for the patient. Here we can see color in the enamel of the tooth. Now the enamel is permanent. It is very low in turnover once it's made, although there is a little bit of turnover. Obviously this has to get there somehow, it's so it's piped in in some fashion. And um, minocycline, very common drug. Many people like this for acne. Many patients take minocycline or given minocycline, and this can cause the same staining of the enamel that you could see in tetracycline. You're, you're warned not to use tetracycline before the permanent teeth have erupted. But minocycline administered to adults once the permanent teeth have erupted can penetrate the enamel and it's permanent. There is no buffing, 
No bleaching that can be done about this. A veneer has to be placed on the tooth to uh, hide this once it occurs. And many of your patients who are on minocycline will get dark brown and black pigmentation in wounds, say if they have leg ulcers. And if you're worried about your patient, just look at the mouth, ask them to pull down the lower lip, pull up the upper lip, and look at the gingivae. And if it's blue back there, they got, they got minocycline pigment in all their bones. Here's another one. There's another one. These are the teeth of a Mayo Clinic staff physician's son who had the wisdom teeth extracted, had been treated with what drug? Minocycline for his acne. And that's, of course, only the dentist can see that, but those are black roots. So that's what's happening to your patient's bones. The orthopedic surgeon might see them, but uh, I don't use minocycline anymore because I'm highly sensitized to this process. This is tetracycline staining of teeth. So, word to the wise about minocycline. Taste disturbances, metronidazole, flagyl, sometimes administered griseofulvin, not administered too much for fungal infections that can cause a perverted sense of taste. And then dry mouth. Many of our drugs do cause a dry mouth. Many patients as they get older have a dry mouth. We'll talk more about that in the second lecture. This is a very dry mouth with angular chylitis and a very dry tongue. A very dry mouth with, you can see, gingival cavities developing. So, stomatitis meticomatosa, and these are common sorts of drug reactions, things you might think about in your patients when they have these complaints. The key is to identify and remove the offending agent to prevent superimposed secondary infection. Once the mouth is inflamed, why it's more likely to develop a secondary infection, careful oral hygiene, good brushing, good flossing, mild denifrous, try to stay away from those bleaching agents and highly fragranced products, dental floss to take the plaque off, and you might want to consider anti-yeast therapy with something like nystatin, mycostatin, oral suspension. If the patient has uh, ulcers or erosions, then they treat symptomatically, find the drug, remove it. If it hurts, milcomagnesia or antacid mouthwashes will cover that. It's just like a fiber membranous slough that your body makes, only we're using artificial. That's a mucosal protectant. And then local uh, painting onto the area with viscous lidocaine will reduce the pain of individual ulcers. And occasionally antihistamines Benadryl mouthwash reduces pain a little bit. If your patient has a severe disease and you haven't identified the drug or you've identified it but the disease is, continues to progress, systemic corticosteroids should right your ship eventually and uh, might be considered. So oral drug reactions, stomatitis meticomatosa. What questions do you have about those before we move on to contact stomatitis? Any questions? Canalog and orobase. No, uh, I, I don't use canalog and orobase. And the reason why I don't like canalog and orobase is it's very hard to use. It's, very, it's a very small tube, 15 grams, very high price. 
Um, you have to dry the mucosa, and then it's sort of like packing it into a sore, and so it, you put it on the finger and, or a cotton-tipped applicator and try to apply it to the area. And it's difficult for patients to use, and they sort of give up too quickly on it. Um, what I do use, if I wish to use a fluorinated corticosteroid, is I use a gel. This gel is usually better tolerated on mucous membranes than ointments, which are like Vaseline, or creams, which are like facial creams and sort of greasy and feel oily in the mouth. But a gel is so, somewhat dry and doesn't feel so oily. And I have 15 gram tube of fluocinolone or Lidex gel, 15 grams, and uh, apply it with the fingertip to the areas involved after each meal and again at bedtime four times a day. So I prefer that over Kenalog and Orabase. It's got a better price because that's now generically available and very reasonably priced and much more easy for the patient to use. Good question. Yes? Magic mouthwash. When I was at Duke University Medical Center, ours was the Duke mouthwash. 17 miles away, there was another fine institution that why is the sky Carolina blue if God is not a Tar Heel? But my team was number one this year, Duke. Uh, they were number one two years ago. But it was the Carolina mouthwash. 17 miles away, it's the same thing. We residents figured that out, the same exact formula. But you take elixir of Benadryl and you, then you start adding to it. And now, what do pharmacists charge for compounding? An extra 25 bucks or something like that? Well, it does take a lot of time. And you can have your patient use the, the uh, easy magic mouthwash. Have them go buy one bottle of Elixir of Benadryl and one bottle of Maalox and pour them together. And that gives them uh, something that will give them a little local anesthesia and something to cover stomatitis or, or open eroded wounds. I tend not to use these medications because I like to use bullets. And if I want to go after a yeast infection, I uh, treat them off, oftentimes with uh, Diflucan, with fluconazole. One or two tablets uh, should take care of it for us. Occasionally I use the nystatin oral suspension, mycostatin oral suspension. Um, I do often use just Elixir Benadryl for its, its uh, soothing uh, elements uh, to it. You, once you start adding, some people added tetracycline powder, then they added a corticosteroid, then they added the milk of magnesia or the Maalox, and that all went into the Benadryl, so you had to start with like a pint of Benadryl so you could get all this stuff in there. And it ended up getting 50, 60 bucks but you got eight ounces or you got a pint of it. But uh, so I go, usually what I'm thinking of, what I worry about, I use the thing. But magic mouthwash is very common. Yes? How soon do you see the discoloration of the teeth of the minocycline? Maybe never, and some people have been on it for rosacea for years, decades. So it's, there's an individual variation so it's hard to predict, but if I see patients on minocycline, I just do a quick oral examination, peel up the lips, look. If I see blue there, it's too late, but we'll start, we'll get rid of it. Or I don't start it, I use doxy instead. I prefer that. Yes? 
Do I think that there's a decrease in the risk of enamel staining with extended release, mini-dose um, uh, tetracycline-like antibiotics, minocycline? Yes, I think there probably is because the dose is lower, only because you're, you're instead of using 100 milligrams twice a day, you're down to using a small amount twice a day. So I think there'd be a proportional reduction in risk. It might be reasonable to consider that. Yes? What is my experience with psoriasis of the mouth? Um, and then is there a successful treatment? Psoriasis of the mouth, histologically, there's only one condition that really looks like it, and that's geographic tongue. And when we do a biopsy of geographic tongue, we see uh, subcorneal collections of neutrophils that look like a Monroe's microabscess that's seen in psoriasis. And so some people have thought about that, and we'll be talking about geographic tongue in more detail in the next lecture. But I uh, took care of patients and receiving the Geckerman regime for psoriasis for many years as a, as a hospitalist in dermatology, and I examined every patient with psoriasis mouth very carefully because my interest hardly anybody has anything to see. So I wonder whether oral psoriasis really exists. And if so, it sure is rare, and it would have to be probably less than 1% of patients in my view. Occasionally, I saw some hyperkeratosis of the cheeks or the lateral border of the tongue, and I thought it was more likely a tongue-thrusting habit or cheek-biting than psoriasis. Lycoplonus is very common in the mouth, the other big papulosquamous disease. We got time, other questions? Yes? Good question. Tetracycline staining of the teeth or would, would occur with doxy or any of the other things if you administered them to a seven, eight-year-old kid. By the time children are 12, 13, 14 years of age, all the teeth in their broadest smile are permanent. So that if you administer those drugs at that time, only the dentist who removes the wisdom teeth are going to see stained enamel. In other words, the last teeth that come in might be at risk. So you can start using the tetracyclines in your early acne patients with relative impunity because all of their permanent teeth have erupted and all that can be seen in the broadest smile are safe. Tetracycline is unlikely then to cause this in an adult. Doxycycline is very unlikely to cause this in an adult, but minocycline is way more likely than either of those drugs to cause adult staining. So only really uh, minocycline is big, ris big risk. Sure, it could happen with the others. Yes? You have to guess on uh, patients on prolonged minocycline treatment. Do I have a guess on what percent of patients on prolonged minocycline treatment will have uh, deposits in bone or enamel? Um, I would say that it's probably well less than 5%, but I, I just look at everybody, and if I see anything, and of course, guess, guess who in my family, I have a son and a daughter, I guess uh, who had acne? Yes, the daughter. 
Guess who needed Accutane? Yes, the daughter. Guess who has minocycline in her gingivi? The daughter, but she doesn't smile widely enough that her gums are really visible. She has not a great big mouth, so only her dad knows and her dentist that she has blue gingivi, but she doesn't use minocycline anymore. Yes? Is the, is the pigmentation in the teeth with minocycline dose-dependent? And if the patient receives a short course, if they receive a short course, I think they're highly unlikely to have any trouble at all. If you're going to use it for a specific infection over two, three months, really not, not a problem. It's the people who've been on it for a long, long time. Well, this is a convoluted situation about a patient who claimed that the minocycline after two months stained her teeth because her dentist told her so, but something to do with swimming caused teeth staining and then it got better. No enamel would get better. If it's fluoride, it's going to be there for a lifetime. If it's minocycline, it's going to be there for a lifetime. If it's tetracycline, it's going to be there for a lifetime. A lot of kids have enough plaque on their teeth, it gets a little gray color. And whenever anybody tells me that, I say, really redouble your efforts using the toothbrush. Get with the flossing program. Start doing this several times a day, and the teeth will look uh, considerably better. So then, uh, gray teeth have been a concern of Mayo Clinic staff physicians' wives and Mayo Clinic staff physicians who are mothers who come with their children for, for acne care. And uh, fl flossing and brushing help a lot of that. So, now I'm going to move on to contact stomatitis. There's a break after my lecture, and I'll be happy to answer any specific uh, additional questions that you have. It's, it's really a lot of fun to answer questions, and I enjoy it very much, and I'll be in the back of the room. Contact stomatitis. So, what we were talking about largely was something from the inside out, and whenever I'm presented with a patient who has a rash, and I really can't figure out easily what is going on, then I uh, adopt the inside-out-outside-in outside in approach, and I start thinking about everything that could come from the outside to the patient could be causing this itching or this rash, and then everything that could be from the inside-out, and so this is from the outside-in sort of situation, and instead of contact dermatitis, and you'll have a nice lecture on patch tests coming up, and we'll use, of course, patch tests here. But we're talking about lips and gums and the rest of the oral cavity. Many patients present to you with their symptoms of a sore burning mouth. And, uh, or some of them may be asymptomatic. You will only see it at a time of examination with erythema, with edema, stomatitis, inflammation of all the tissues. That would be stomatitis. Gingivitis would be limited to the gingivae. The uh, gingivae are different than the rest of the mucous membranes. The hard palate and the gingivae have a lot of keratin. They are masticatory mucosa. They're used in chewing, and so they're tough like your palms and soles. 
whereas the labial mucosa, the undersurface of the tongue, the buccal mucosa, doesn't have to worry about friction very much and so has hardly any stratum corneum. So dramatic, histologic, and clinical picture in this condition, which is called atypical gingivostomatitis. And this is bright red fire engine, red gums, and other oral tissues. You can see it here, very dramatic. Now, if you look at the top of the picture, you see what we think of as the sulcus or the, uh, the area where the attached gingivae meet, the soft, loose tissue of the, um, of the upper part of the mouth and then extend around to the lips. And you look down below and where the attached gingivae meet and move down toward the sulcus, it is not so much involved. And it's almost like you have to have stratum corneum to have a complete antigen, to have a complete allergen, to develop the allergic contact stomatitis because it's limited dramatically to the attached gingivae, as you can see here in this patient. Not so much uh, inside on the lingual or tongue side. And the histology is equally as dramatic as the clinical picture with acanthosis and papillomatosis and a tense plasma cytoid inflammatory infiltrate that abuts and then invades into the epithelium. So an inflammatory reaction. Now when this first happened, it was called a number of things. Plasma cell gingivostomatitis, plasma cell gingivitis, atypical gingivostomatitis, and uh, idiopathic gingivostomatitis. People could not figure out what was going on in these patients. Harold Perry, who was a dermatologist, and Phil Sheridan, who was a dentist, and Norm Defner, who was a dermatology resident, uh, with Dr. Perry's leadership, thought, could these people be allergic to something? Could they have an allergic contact stomatitis? And when he began to see these patients from Wisconsin and from Minnesota, they came in with these red-hot inflamed gingivae. One lady was a soprano in her choir, and she lost her voice. She couldn't sing as well as she could before. What was common was that many of them used Crest Mint toothpaste, which was new at that time. And many were using Wrigley's Spearmint or Double Mint chewing gum. So we have two great companies, one in Chicago and one in Cincinnati, still surviving, so obviously this didn't take them down. But their mint products seemed to be causing this problem. So Dr. Perry called them and they said, no, this is a trade secret. We won't let you have it. You can't have it for patch testing. He says, I'm not going into business to compete with you. I want to find out what's wrong with my patients. Don't tell me what it is. Just send it to me and we'll make it up and we'll do patch testing. And they did and he did and they were positive. So Crest Mint Toothpaste and Wrigley Double Mint and Spearmint Chewing Gum caused this problem. Well, both of these companies got a new supplier for mint. Their products are still available, but this blip of all these people that had this atypical gingivostomatitis went away. Now we see it with other things, and presently it's cinnamon in big red chewing gum and cinnamon-containing dentifrices. So still out there, and uh, this is uh, atypical gingivostomatitis, a dramatic contact stomatitis. When you see those gums, you know immediately what's going on. 
allergic contact stomatitis. So this is a study of a group of patients who presented rather undifferentiated, but with uh, inflammation of some part of the mucous membranes, like this, redness of the gingivae, buccal mucosa, little uh, redness on the tip of the tongue. So there were 26 patients, mean age of uh, 49, large eight range of ages, long time with problems, some of which had pain, and some had burning, and some had a dry mouth, and some knew some foods might be giving them trouble, and variable uh, sites, but usually rather extensive. And in 81% of our patients, patch tests were helpful to us in sorting out what was going on. And some of our patients, by that time, we knew what, what it was. They couldn't stay for patch tests, and so uh, we made the recommendation and they moved on. And what did we find? Well, what we found was cinnamon, cinnamic aldehyde, and alcohol, and fragrance mix, all cousins, all chemically related, very common causes. Also, spearmint oil. You can see uh, some of the preservatives. We'll talk more about metals, uh, but cane, uh, peppermint, eugenol, jasmine cross-reacts with cinnamon. And so when we identified what it was that we believed was triggering by performing patch tests and removed that, then six completely cleared, four had intermittent uh, trouble, and that's because it's pretty hard to avoid cinnamon, particularly if you're in Minnesota, where all the Scandinavians put it in everything. So whether it's buns or Christmas cookies or whatever, occasionally we had an irritant contact reaction, but the key is to uh, look for these <clears throat> potential causes and identify it. And patch tests are helpful to get a subset of patients who may have oral mucositis or stomatitis with contact allergies, and fragrances and flavorings were the most important chemicals that we ran into. And we'll talk more about gold in a minute. So we must use caution because there are potential for false positive patch tests, and it should be clinically relevant. It should fit. If you don't find it, the stomatitis will continue. Topical corticosteroids are a little bit helpful. You can use them as a dexamethasone mouth rinse or systemic corticosteroids, but you really want to know what it is so you can put out the fire and know it's not going to recur because nobody's throwing kerosene on it anymore. So, contact stomatitis. This is Minnesota in the winter. You saw one picture with a bright sky. It's very pretty, very cold. That's when we get our weather from, from Alberta, from Canada. And there's no water in that air because it's so cold. So we have pretty skies. And then sometimes we get our weather from the west coming across the Rockies and the plains. And it's got a lot of snow in it. And the snow we get in January, we keep till May. Lichenoid contact stomatitis. Now, we talked about oral lycanplanus being a very common condition. We talked about drugs administered systemically causing oral lycanplanus. And now we're going to look at the concept of something topically, locally, causing a lichenoid tissue reaction or an oral lichenplanus-like stomatitis. Here's a paper from Mayo, from Scottsdale, our practice in Arizona, and from Rochester, on uh, relevant contact sensitivities in patients with a diagnosis of oral lycanplanus. So they came in to view as oral lycanplanus, suspect contact sensitivity, 
patch tests. Now, oral lichenoid tissue reactions can occur in many contexts. We only have so many ways we can react to certain insults. A lichenoid tissue reaction is a very common reaction we have to diseases and certain insults. Oral lichen planus, and indeed cutaneous lichen planus, is uh, one of those big ones, obviously. Erythema multiforme, whether it's in the skin or the mouth, is a, can be a lichenoid tissue reaction. Oral lupus erythematosus is a lichenoid tissue reaction. Oral graft versus host disease is another lichenoid tissue reaction. And then contact or drug reactions looking like lichen planus. So we need to move through that differential diagnosis. We can have it localized or diffuse, limited to the gingivae, other areas, tongue. Sometimes the patients have a lot of symptoms, soreness, and we've talked about atypical gingivostomatitis as a kind of allergic contact stomatitis, but now we're going to drill down on lichenoid contact stomatitis. Remember, lichenoid is a papulosquamous disease, so you have papules with scale, classic or cutaneous lichen planus, the four Ps, purple, polygonal, pyritic papules with scale. So here we see dental metal restorations of the silver type, of the amalgam mercury type, and a lesion adjacent to that. That could be trauma, abrasion as your tongue moves and that tooth is not vertical but rolled a little bit uh, mesially inside, so then you have a thickening of the tissue and an erosion. So you have to make sure whether the teeth are in the proper alignment and use your dentist to help out in that regard. And then you maybe want to call this a lichenoid tissue reaction. Now, contact stomatitis can be primary irritant. We talked about those like aspirin and pizza, pizza uh, pepperoni pizzas. And we talked about fragrances, balsam of Peru, and the cinnamon, vanilla, clove, peppermint, spearmint, and that group. And now we're looking at the metals. Now here is a patient who does have another one of those lesions, has a little hyperkeratosis in front and back of a big erosion, number of dental metal restorations in the molars and premolars. Could this be a lichenoid contact stomatitis with an erosion because erosive oral lichen planus occurs? Well, we first have our dental colleagues see these patients, make absolutely sure that the uh, teeth are in the proper planes because they can solve these erosions if they're unilateral very easily with uh, dental means and we don't want to treat these medically. Here is a patient with erythema of the uh, attached gingivae, sparing where the tooth isn't. And this was a patient who was using malaleuca toothpaste. I don't know why you would want to put malaleuca in a toothpaste, but somebody did and somebody bought it. So mercury, amalgams, silver-colored mercury um, uh, dental amalgams, amalgams, uh, dental fillings contain mercury. And whether or not mercury allergy is pertinent is a controversial topic. And here's why it's controversial. There are dentists who will tell their patients, I can solve your migraine headaches, fibromyalgia, infertility, bad, uh, bad uh, 
of marital relations with husband and wife by removing all that mercury from your body, which is poisoning you, and replacing it with porcelain jacketed crowns at six to $800 a pop. Well, the American Dental Association doesn't like those people, and they're charlatans, and they're not scientific, and so they have taken a very strong stand that mercury amalgams, dental amalgams, are not toxic and don't cause patients problems. So that if you begin to raise the specter of mercury contact dermatitis, stomatitis in the mouth, your dentist isn't going to want to talk to you. They've been told by the ADA that that's bogus and that mercury doesn't cause allergies. So this is a controversial topic, but there's no question that mercury causes contact stomatitis. Now here's a patient who has trouble with her metal fillings. I have metal fillings in my teeth. My refrigerator magnets keep pulling me into the kitchen. That's why I'm gaining weight. So, do, does removing mercury amalgams help patients? Here's a group who say it does, and there are some who, who disagree. Well, obviously the first thing you have to have is you have to have the lesions next to teeth that have the metal, number one. So, it has to be in apposition. It has to be in close proximity. And so we're looking here at teeth that do have mercury amalgams, and a lichenoid reaction occurring in the buccal mucosa, and you can see how when the mouth closes, that folds right down into the area where there are, uh, where there's dental metal. But if you look on the other side of the mouth, and there are dental metal um, amalgams made of mercury, and there's no stomatitis, then obviously this is, that's not the cause, because it should be uh, symmetrical in every place where you have the um, mercury uh, amalgams. So here's a study in the JAD in 1999. Patch test readings delayed, and this is important to remember. They may not show positive until the second week. If you bring them in on Monday and put them on and read them on Wednesday when they're removed and read them on Friday after five days and discharge the patient, then you may miss a late blooming allergy, and they're usually golden mercury, and that's when you miss them. So you need to bring them back in two weeks to review them and positive patch tests were found in some of these patients. And when the metal was removed, the patients got better. So here is a big article in the Archives of Dermatology from Leindecker and colleagues in 2004, Oral Lichen Planus and Allergy to Dental Amalgam Restorations. So they set out in Holland to determine the, whether contact allergy in patients with oral lichen planus and to monitor the effect of partial or complete replacement of the amalgam fillings following a positive patch test reaction. And contact allergy to mercury compounds was important in the pathogenesis of oral lycoplanus, especially if there was a close contact with amalgam fillings and if no concomitant cutaneous lycoplanus were present. In other words, Patients with oral and cutaneous lichen planus were very unlikely to have positive patch tests. So if they have generalized lichen planus of the skin and oral lesions, then the chances go down substantially. Partial or complete replacement led to significant improvement in the patients. There's another study from Lane, 118 patients with oral lichenoid lesions 
related to dental fillings, and here we have all kinds of metal now, and positive patch test reactions, and replacement of fillings with good improvement. Now, the other major dental metal used is gold. And gold is a metallogically uh, inert, and it's very difficult to become soluble. But you may or may not know gold is as likely to cause a false positive patch test reaction as nickel. You know, about 10% of patients will react to nickel or to gold who have no contact dermatitis or stomatitis at all. So it's a false positive reaction, and that's a background that you always have to remember that if the test is positive, it has to be clinically relevant. So that if you sat down and patch tested at 100 of us, five of us or so, maybe a few more, would have a positive reaction, and yet we don't have any problems at all. So uh, gold is a very interesting uh, allergen, and it was the allergen of the year in 2001 for the North American Contact Dermatitis Group. And here are some quotes about it. Patients with dental gold are more likely to have positive patch tests, but no oral lesions. We just mentioned that. Some patients with positive patch tests to gold had oral lycoplanus, and some had burning mouth, and they improved with removal of gold. This is the same line decker. And here's our study. 46 patients with oral lichenoid lesions, 14 with positive patch tests to gold. 10 of the 14 were felt to be clinically relevant. In other words, they were in apposition. Four out of four who had the gold removed. Remember, this is expensive. We're talking four to 600 bucks to remove and replace a dental metal crown or restoration. So some patients won't do it, and some patients dentists say, you shouldn't do that. So here is a patient with a gold crown, lichenoid lesions adjacent to their um, teeth. Here, all the way down into the sulcus, up onto the buccal mucosa, and look at the lateral board of the tongue. You see the fibromembranous slough and the erythematous base, so this is ulcerating. Now that gold crown is not in perfect vertical alignment, it's sort of laid in a little bit sideways, so there may be an element of kebnerization or trauma, but this is uh, in this area. Look at this, gold crowns, gold dental metal restorations, none in the anterior mouth by the, by the central incisors, and then just as soon as you hit gold territory, the inflammation is seen uh, there. Study by Leanne Scalf and colleagues from Louisville, 2001, 51 patients with oral lichenoid lesion, variety of metals tested for. Once you remove them, they got better. So here are 23 patients from my practice with the oral lichenoid lesions, 21 women, two men, positive to a number of metals. The bottom line is 17 had replacement and 15 of the 17 uh, improved and no replacement in six, and one of the six uh, improved a little bit. So pretty good odds that you come to the right conclusion. Now, you do need the positive patch test reaction, and so that's critical. And you do one, you put them on on day one, you do readings on day three, day five, and then a week later to make sure you pick up the late-blooming metal reactions. And it can be any metal, so we have a whole series of metals. We have palladium, we have beryllium, we have cobalt, we have several salts of nickel, we have 
several salts of gold, by several salts of mercury, and all the other metals, because not only is this diagnostic, but this should also be predictive. We should be able to tell the prosthodontist, the dentist, whoever is going to replace that crown, and the laboratory that's going to make it, you are impugned. It's perfectly okay to use titanium. It's okay to use beryllium. It's okay to use nickel. It's okay to use tin. It's okay to use other things, but you can't put in whatever else they may be allergic to. So it's not only diagnostic, but also predictive. This is a gold positive patch test. And we use five salts of mercury, and we'd like two or three to be positive, to really feel good about having a, a clinically relevant positive. Three salts of gold, cobalt, chromium, zinc, and a lot of other metals which are used to fashion these uh, new crowns, jackets, and, and uh, restorations. And there are a lot of them. And here were what we had uh, as allergens. Beryllium, nine. Mercury, eight. Gold that was number one. But other metals, so that this is critically important in order to put in the proper uh, replacement. And uh, this will be, you can spend some time reviewing this. Replaced and improved replacement with no benefit. So there were two patients with gold who had no benefit with replacement, but they usually had multiple allergy, some single. So oral lichenoid tissue reactions include oral lycoplanus, lycoplanus like stomatitis, that's for example from a drug reaction, oral lichenoid lesions, undefined, could be emultiformi, graphersis oral lycoplanus, oral lupus erythematosus, and lichenoid contact stomatitis. And you need a high index of suspicion. The lesions should be adjacent uh, to the metal, and wherever the metal is in the mouth, there should be lesions. And where there is no metal, there should be no lesions. Now you can have contact stomatitis to various flavorings and also to metals. Removal of the dental metals to which the patient reacts and replacement with dental metals which were negative in patch testing results in the best outcome for our patients. And we must always remember that some patch tests may be not clinically relevant. So be careful about that. This was an editorial I wrote with that article. Is organic metal the culprit? Yes. Will the dentist have trouble? Pick up the phone and ask, ask them to call you back when it's convenient between patients and speak with you about that and educate them about lichenoid contact stomatitis and that can really occur. You may often have to work hard for your patient with the healthcare insurer because they say that's dental, that's not a medical problem, we are not going to pay dental stuff, we only pay medical problems and I explain it very carefully as a contact reaction, a systemic allergy to nickel, no matter where the nickel comes in contact with the skin they're going to react, I tell them about ear piercing and people who become allergic to nickel and how common that is and this is a common allergen and it happens to have been placed in their teeth causing a reaction, a stomatitis, and uh, I keep working on them until I get it. So you need a high uh, clinical, uh, clinical examination confirmatory, a high index of suspicion, and patch test results. So we've talked about 
from the inside out, stomatitis medicamentosa, some of which oral drug reactions are external, like aspirin and that sort of thing. But then turned it the other way from the outside in, talked about atypical gingivostomatitis, those fire engine red gums, limited mostly to the gingivae, but can be elsewhere due to flavorings, cinnamon and is presently the one more likely to be causing the problem. A general group of patients with allergic contact stomatitis for a variety of sites, and we found a variety of things, including flavors and fragrances and preservatives. I just saw a lady yesterday who was allergic to propyl and octalgalate. Galates are preservatives. They're often in lipsticks. They're in many oral health products. And she was going crazy with oral pain, swollen lips, swollen gums, swollen tongue, but she had been using a product or a gel that she purchased over the counter and it gave her some relief for about 10 minutes and then it was worse. So she used more and more and more and she was using buckets of this stuff. I can't imagine what her bill was for that. It's like the fellow with pruritus ani that keeps putting on benzocaine, you know, whoa, stops the itch but he's allergic to benzocate, so whoa, boy. <laughs> Lots of inflammation, but it itches, so you put it back on, and then the itch goes away, and that's exactly what she was doing, but it wasn't the benzocaine that caused her problem, it was the preservative. And so it's important then to do the patch testing and find, find the uh, proper thing. So we have plenty of time for questions. I finished with the presentation, and I want to thank you very much for your kind uh, attention. And it would be good if you would use the microphones. That would be terrific. Do you have suggestions or recommendations for specific types of patch testing that you use? We uh, purchase our, our allergens, many of them from Europe, because they're, they're hard to get. Some of them are, we sneak in through Canada. And we have our pharmacists make many of them, and all of the percents are there for you. They're all in petrolatum. Uh, they have a shelf life, and then they have to be remade again. So it's very expensive, and this is not the kind of thing that you would have in a usual dental, I mean, in a dental office or in a medical office available to you. You'd need to send your patient probably on to your nearest contact dermatitis patch test center where they would be able to have the store of antigens available. And we, we have all those at, at Mayo Clinic. And, we can see them, we can get the patch tests on, send them back to you, you take them off and do the readings, but uh, we'd be happy to do that for you because we got them and uh, happy to help out. Yes? Any use of the serum studies for, the, for determining an allergy? Any use of blood tests to determine allergy? Blood, uh, patients ask that very commonly, and that is a, a very commonly, uh, patients wonder, why do you have to do this? Why can't you just do a blood test for this? I know there are blood tests for allergies. And then we encounter the uh, common thing that you patients don't ask and you don't intuit, and that is allergy is one word to them. They have no concept of immediate versus delayed hypersensitivity. And so whenever I encounter a patient with a contact allergic type 4 delayed hypersensitivity reaction, I sit down, I take out a piece of paper, and I say there are two kinds of allergies, immediate and delayed allergies. I write down immediate allergies. I put down hives, asthma, hay fever. They know that. They know that as soon as they're exposed to the cat, their eyes start running. 
That takes minutes. It's mediated by a different uh, part of your immune system. Then on the other limb, I put down delayed. And I said, did you ever have a TB skin test? Well, they may or may not have. When did you go back to have it read? Two days later. This is a delayed allergy. It takes two days for the allergic reaction to develop. That's why we do patch tests. Patch tests are different than prick tests. Can you imagine a patient, prick test, patch test, what the hell, you know? Just do it. Prick test, of course, the allergist gets the answer in 10 or 15 minutes, puts scratches, can see what you're allergic to. You can do blood tests for that. They're called RAS tests. So, no, that's not the kind of allergy you have. You have a delayed allergy. We have to do these patch tests. Yes? Are you seeing a lot of the titanium implant reactions? No. As much? You're not. Titanium is a very rare problem. So positive reaction to titanium is very rare. And titanium joint replacement reactions are exceedingly rare. Okay. Yes? In the patients with the contact stomatitis to the flavorings, what toothpaste do you recommend? Um, I usually have them start out with just simple Colgate with nothing in it. You know, it's hard to find because that's what I like to use, and I, I spend a lot of time at these dang grocery stores trying to find just plain old what used to be plain, Colgate. plain old Colgate toothpaste. What about this? So there are uh, PELU, P-E-E-L-U products, and they're often found in health food stores, and then Tom's of that's Maine has some products. Of course, they have a cinnamon-laden one, so you have to pick the appropriate thing. But Tom's of Maine has a website you can go to and check and see what's in all their Thank products. You. Yes? Um, with the uh, blue hue that you talked about with menocycline, are you seeing any of that sometimes with some of the bleaching agents when people tend to really over-bleach their teeth or some contact kind of things with the gum at all? Yes, I th but I don't. I think it, blue is just disclosing it. They've they've taken away, away some of the background color that was muting it, and now you know it's, it's showing up a little a little better. And they may have picked up something fluoride or something uh, that that stained their teeth other than tetracycline. Okay. Thank you. But it's more obvious, so they should just back off some. Well, terrific. Well, thank you again for your wonderful questions and for your attendance.